Polls confirmed that Drew Pearson was the nation's best-known columnist, and his syndicate touted the merry-go-round as the best column from Washington by advertising, promotion, and selling. In 1944, the Washington Press Corps begrudgingly voted him the Washington correspondent who exerted the greatest influence on the nation, giving him twice the votes of Walter Lippmann. Even his most outspoken critics credited him for being virtually a government within a government with his own core of agents. Donald A. Ritchie, in his book, The Columnist. Welcome to Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. This is the second in a two-part series on the famous columnist, Drew Pearson. In the first program in this series, which aired August 23, my guest was Donald Ritchie, and we discussed his book about Drew Pearson, The Columnist. Today, we're very fortunate to have Tyler Abel, Drew Pearson's stepson with us, to discuss the more personal side of the investigative reporter. Tyler, welcome to Delmarva today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tyler, Don Ritchie, in the introduction to his book, asked the question, who was Drew Pearson? Let me begin by asking you the same question. Who was Drew Pearson? And why do you believe it is important that this book appear at this time? It's fascinating at this time to look at the career of Drew Pearson, who changed the way news was reported in his era, which went from 1932 to 1969. And I think the comparison to fake news and every other kind of news with what Drew Pearson did, which was to do the real news, not the press release news, but the investigative behind-the-scenes news is just a very interesting comparison. I got this very nice letter. It's a copy of a letter from my nephew, Drew's grandson, Joe Arnold, to Don Ritchie. And he says, Dear Mr. Ritchie, I just finished your excellent biography of Drew Pearson, my grandfather, it was very well researched. I'm sure primary and secondary sources were overwhelming rather than too spare. But the book was well put together as a narrative. Opening up with the Dodd staffers was a good hook. Ending with the legacy epilogue was great and instructional for our present times. 
It was a fascinating read for me, being familiar with many of the stories, but a bit fuzzy on some of the detail and, and chronology. I hope it is fascinating to many others as well. I'm trying it out on a local businessman and a lawyer journalist who is as old as I am and remembers all the principles. Maybe I'll send it to Al Simpson, that's the senator from Wyoming, whose book, Right in the Old Gazoo, chronicles his sparring with the press. He calls Pearson, quote, intrepid, ignoble, and arrogant. Well, at least intrepid can be considered a compliment. I knew Drew Pearson as a grandfather, and he was always a hero to me. Your book confirms that with a lot more depth and fascinating detail. Sincerely yours, Joe Arnold. I thought that was interesting because it does show how Drew was very, very much a family man. Drew Pearson was um, a a really very famous uh, columnist and and incredibly uh, well-known. And he was also uh, a Quaker. What was it like with Drew Pearson, this Quaker, this very famous man, as your father? It was a wonderful experience. Uh, I loved Drew. He very much became my father. He was a wonderful family man. Uh, He really, really was interested in having the family be a family. As a Quaker, he didn't let Quakerism get in the way. He was a a rather practical Quaker. Quakers say thee and thou when they're talking to each other, but he never did that except when he was with his brothers and sisters, his brother and sisters, or uh, other, like his in-law, his brother-in-law, who was a devout Quaker. But uh, at meals, just the three of us, or, or even four or more, when there was just a family meal, we would all hold hands and give a, a silent blessing at the table. Now, they weren't really different. They were the same, although, uh, of course, this was during the Great Depression, and an awful lot of people were starving. Uh, Drew made, made very good money with his column, and was uh, very willing to spend it to make our lives quite comfortable. So we ate well and had a butler and a cook. And uh, he was very interested in what he ate. He ate, uh, he liked his bacon almost uncooked, which he would put in his oatmeal little tear it up into little pieces and put in his oatmeal. And uh, if you 
Put something on your plate, you had to eat it. He promoted the Clean Plate Club. And because he said people in China were starving, I naturally told him that I thought that if the people in China wanted my food, they could have it. Was he uh, was he a strict uh, father? Was he a, a very reasonable father? How how was life with him for you, a young boy? He was very reasonable. Couldn't have been nicer or more charming. He was a had been a good athlete in school, and he. Uh, wanted to do athletic things with me. I was a fairly good athlete, and he taught me how to be an acrobat. He taught me how to swim, uh, play baseball, uh, all those things. He was, and he was just a, a, he's a kind of a person that, one of the reasons he was a very good reporter is he could talk to people and get them to like him and to talk to him and tell him what they should, what he thought they should be telling him, the truth about the news. And that's why he was so good. He just was very, very good. He worked so, such long hours and, and was so uh, incredibly uh, productive. How did he have time uh, for the family? How, how out of his uh, work day and his travel schedule did, did he carve out time for you? He was uh, just amazing the way he would do just exactly that. He would carve out time and he would make, uh, he would just make it work. Uh, he did all sorts of Interesting things. I remember him taking me and my stepsister, who was a little six years older. Uh, she was attending a little school over in Arlington, and uh, they had riding. So he, she got riding lessons over there, and he took me to go watch her ride. And he had also arranged for uh, a news photographer to come along and take pictures of her riding, which he you know, kept in the family album and also had uh, published in the, one of the newspapers, the Times-Herald. He just figured out how to get more done in less time whatever it took. He could write a column in, you know, an hour. And then he was ready to go on and do something with his family. When he went on his honeymoon, he took with my mother. My mother didn't like the honeymoon idea at all because with the honeymoon, he brought his child, my mother's child, and the nanny. Some honeymoon, my mother said. Yeah, right. Right. I wonder how many columns he wrote uh, on uh, on that honeymoon. That, 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 that. 
One a day. One. Well, that's right. One a day for years. Um, Although in, in that period, he had a partner, Bob Allen. And so Bob could have written some of the columns at that time. But uh, Drew would have, one of the things he did while he was on his honeymoon was to interview leaders in Europe. Well, your, your, your stepfather made um, a lot of enemies in his, uh, in his writing career. Uh, he, he didn't like to be an enemy. He wanted to be a friend. And uh, he was only a serious enemy of men who were truly... Uh, truly wrong. He said he sent several uh, several congressmen to jail. Uh, he even the ones that didn't go to jail. Uh, he managed to have uh, McCarthy, Senator Joe McCarthy, censured and. Uh, Tom Dodd, a senator from Connecticut, he exposed for misusing his campaign contributions, and Dodd was uh, censured. According to uh, Richie, uh, Drew Pearson uh, created a, a lot of sleepless nights for uh, a number of politicians. Uh, ruined, uh, ruined the careers, uh, even of um, of some. But uh, I, I want to ask you a little bit about um, the uh, the operation um, in in Georgetown. Uh, the Washington merry-go-round staff uh, operated out of your house. Uh, in in Georgetown, I understand. Again, all of this is from is from Richie's book. But uh, the house in Georgetown housed a newsroom with desks, cabinets, several secretaries, uh, along with uh, normal office clutter and telephone ringing and and so forth. What what was that like for you as you were growing up? It was fascinating. It was like living in a in a business, and uh, Drew was wonderful about the way he would uh, accommodate the fact that his own personal office was, you know, between the the hall in the main house and his secretary's. Uh, room, and some t frequently the secretaries would be brought lunch because they would be working overtime. So the cook or the butler would open the door on his end of the office, carry the tray of food through, open the next door, and take the tray to the secretary. And then uh, he just didn't bother about. Uh, somebody like me coming into his office. It didn't bother him 
too much. But I remember one occasion I took a friend of mine, Charlie Coleman, and I said, come on in here, Charlie. And we went in to Drew's office and we played with some toy cars on the floor while he was trying to write a column. And instead of getting mad at us and chasing us the hell out of there, which any normal father would have done, uh, he called the chauffeur and said quietly to the chauffeur that he should take, the chauffeur should take us out to the airport so we could watch the planes land and take off. And that's exactly what happened. So he, he, he accomplished that in a, in a way that, you know, kept him on, you know, very friendly. How did your mother uh, adjust to uh, having uh, an office in, in her home? She did it very well. I, I don't, I, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a problem. Drew had phones everywhere. And in those days, this was, again, the 1930s, uh, it, wasn't a, it was a big deal to have even one telephone. Drew had a telephone in almost every room in the house with an intercom. Nobody had ever had an intercom then in their own private home. And lots of offices didn't have phones with intercoms. But you could call from uh, the kitchen to the bedroom or from the bedroom to the kitchen and tell the cook that you wanted breakfast in bed that morning and to bring up two three-minute boiled eggs and some bacon and toast. And that would happen. And I learned how to work the phone pretty quickly. But when my friends came over, they were all fascinated by the fact that Tyler Abel had a house full of telephones. And uh, the, the, my mother solved the phone problem by getting her own phone, which didn't have any connection to anybody else's phone. It was just one phone. It had a different phone number. And so her friends could call her on that phone without it being answered by a secretary. Well, you, you already mentioned earlier that um, it, your stepfather was um, a very, very uh, highly productive, uh, productive man. Uh, and, and it seems that uh, he was a man on a mission. And certainly, uh, as you indicated earlier, a prodigious uh, producer. He wrote a daily column, a weekly newsletter. He had a radio and television scripts that he wrote. He gave lectures and uh, attended other uh, speaking engagements. And the unknown number of receptions that he went to where uh, he met people and uh, gained uh, information for uh, his uh, columns and, and radio programs. Uh, Tyler 
What do you believe drove him so? I never thought about it. I honestly don't know. He, that's just, you know, some people are lazy. Some people are workaholics. He was a workaholic. But he was a kind of a workaholic who would make time for his family, particularly his family. He just loved the members of his family. And uh, he was always, you know, if he, if he was, if he had to give a lecture in California, he would be much happier because <clears throat> in later years, his daughter, his only child, lived in California. And so having a lecture in California meant that he would have an excuse to go to California and have a tax deductible or have the lecture people pay for his travel. So you saw this as uh, a, a, a normal kind of, uh, of working arrangement, this, uh, this driven um, attitude. You say driven. It, it really didn't seem driven. He didn't seem that way because he was, <clears throat> he was so free and easy being able to do two things at the same time that it didn't seem unusual. I mean, some people are driven and uh, their, their drive keeps them from being reasonable people. They just are, you know, they, they, they become the kind of chief executive who's always, you know, telling everybody exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. He was very... Uh, he knew how to get along. He knew how to be personable. He's very good at it. So it was a very balanced and organized life for you. Uh, it was, yes, it was, but it was different. Although I didn't think of it as different. For example, I remember him taking me. His daughter at one time was in boarding school in uh Deerfield, Massachusetts. And so I was taken with him. I don't know why my mother wasn't along, but I remember just being with Drew. And uh, we visited with Ellen, the daughter. And then he went to see the newspaper publisher of the Greenfield, forgotten what the name of the paper was, but the Greenfield Times or whatever the little, you know, little paper in Greenfield, Massachusetts was. And he talked with the publisher, and while he was talking with the publisher, I was out <coughs> watching the linotype operator do the way newspapers were printed in those days on this huge linotype machine, which printed, made print in, by, by, on molten lead, and I could borrow, I did borrow, I remember, but very specifically, taking a few handfuls of lead which had dried out and wasn't hot anymore, uh, and putting it in my pocket so I could take it home 
to make toy soldiers with it. Well, Tyler, it, it was September 1, 1969, and you were at the farm uh, in Maryland, and, and Drew wasn't well. And he asked you and your mother to drive him around the farm. And would you mind telling us about that day and, and what happened and how you felt? Drew had been sick for several weeks. He'd been in Georgetown University Hospital and had a a heart problem. He, he definitely had a leaky heart valve and he was collecting a lot of fluid. They had done some some heart, not surgery, but they had uh, done some, I don't know what procedures to help his heart and to get him hopefully on the road to recovery. And they decided that he would be better off resting at the farm rather than staying in the hospital. And so they let him come to the farm, and he'd been here for a day uh, and spent the night. And the next morning, uh, I remember <clears throat> he and I had breakfast out on the terrace, and my mother was there, and she, uh, he then said that, and he read the newspaper, and we talked about politics and the war, and he said that uh, he'd like to look around the farm. And so we did. Uh, I can't remember whether my mother was in the car or not, but I remember that I was driving and we went around and saw some of the uh, cows. He was very, very much liked his cows and some of the workers. Um, and then he said he was a little tired and thought maybe he should go back and home. And when we got here, he had to struggle a little bit to get out of the car and he went in and got into bed and lay down. And uh, he just said he thought he'd done too much and closed his eyes. And uh, I decided that I should better call the doctor. So I called the doctor and uh, isn't it amazing to reach a doctor on a holiday? And he said to call an ambulance and go to uh, Georgetown Hospital, which called the ambulance and the ambulance driver uh, and, the, and an assistant uh, put him on a stretcher and brought him into the ambulance. And my mother and I rode in the ambulance to uh, Georgetown Hospital where the doctor was waiting at the emergency room entrance. The doctor was already there, and when the ambulance drove up, he 
came out and uh, listened for his heartbeat. And um, that was the end. We had said that uh, Drew Pearson had uh, had a lot of enemies, but that uh, that apparently wasn't the end of it. Um, I understand that later, a thousand people gathered uh, for a memorial service for Drew Pearson at the Washington Cathedral. I don't. I didn't count the house, but it was full, and so it it was full, and it was a a, a very nice service. Uh, Wayne Morris spoke. Uh, Walter Washington spoke. Uh, Earl Warren spoke. I spoke. Um, it was a, it was a moving ceremony. Well, Tyler, I want to thank you very, very much for talking with me today on Delmarva today. I greatly appreciate your taking the time and your sharing. Uh, your life uh, in in the family with Drew Pearson um, with us. And I want to thank all of you for listening. This is Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>